Welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. This will be episode 6, part 4 of the Huns of August series. This episode took a little long to get out, folks, and that's because I took a vacation with my family to New York City, a very much needed vacation for us. I appreciate your patience and hope this episode will be worth the wait for you. I posted on my Instagram page at OTTGW Podcast that I tried looking for a memorial in Harlem dedicated to the 369th Infantry. Unfortunately, I was unable to locate it. I plugged the memorial in on my Google Maps where it said it was supposed to be, but there was nothing there. I walked around for a few blocks surrounding the supposed location, but I still couldn't find it. I received some responses saying it's located across the street from the armory, which I didn't go to because I was told it was fenced up by a worker who was working around the city. USAWarMemorials.org shows somewhat of the same memorial I was looking for being an overseas memorial, so I'm not really sure where it is, but I was bummed I didn't find it or see it. If anybody has a confirmed location, please shoot me a note through the show's email or Instagram. It would be much appreciated. In the news related to the Harlem Hellfighters, on November 16th in Long Island, New York, the family of Sergeant Leander Willett received the Purple Heart for his wounds received in the Great War. Leander was 17 when he joined the 369th Harlem Hellfighters. Past petitions were rejected by lack of documentation. Congratulations to the family of Leander Willett, much deserved and very much long overdue. The story of the Harlem Hellfighters is amazing. If there's no memorial in the States, or if they've moved it, this would be very disheartening. But overall, my vacation and first experience of New York was good. It's a very crowded, fast-paced city. Could have done without Times Square, but the food is great and there's a lot of history to explore. History, food, and culture is the reason I love to travel. We stayed on the Jersey side and took the PATH train every day into New York. So if you're considering visiting the Big Apple and want to save a lot of money, stay on the Jersey side. Give it a try. Some show updates. I should be able to get one more episode out with no issues before we ring in the new year. Might shoot for two, but as I always say, don't overcommit yourself. So no promises on the second one. We're going to have one more episode for the Huns of August series before we enter September of 1914. I'm excited for the new year and what's in store for the show, and mainly it's because I'm really enjoying talking about the Great War. Yeah, I know, sometimes it's hard to record the episodes, I'm not the best speaker, so trying to put out the best content means take after take, deleting word fumbles, and I mean just overall mental breakdowns as I get tongue twisted from time to time. But overall, in all seriousness, I'm having fun. But folks, you know why we're here. Last episode, we talked about Joffre launching Plan 17's two-phase offensive. First one being the Alsace and Lorraine offensive, and the second being the Ardennes offensive. And what do both of these offensives have in common? They both failed. Completely failed. They both received a big no-go at the offensive station. In Alsace, the Huns sucked in the French right flank after the Pilus took Mohaus, exposing major gaps in their line. The French were then pounced on and driven right back to their original starting point. But this wasn't a complete disaster. They were able to dig in and establish defensive positions and give it right back to the Germans who gave chase. But the resistance only lasted so long as the Germans were overall the superior force. 
In the Ardennes, the French were slaughtered by the well-defended German machine gun and artillery positions in the blanket of fog of the wooded hills. The French, with their bright red trousers and bright blue coats, kept sending wave after wave to be ripped apart. Joffre's 3rd and 4th had no choice but to retreat after suffering heavy casualties. Almost a third of the Pailus attacking the Ardennes had been killed. I'll repeat that again. One third of the attacking force had been killed. Those numbers are staggering. On an earlier episode, I talked about the Huns entering Liège, getting fired upon by the Belgians, and getting their first taste of this war and with the carnage that comes with it. To the Germans in Liège, this was the eye-opener. It was no longer a game. The French now got that same dish served in Alsace and and the Ardennes, only on a much bigger plate. Casualties for the French up to this point have exceeded 250,000. 75,000 had been killed on August 22nd alone. Think about that. This was a new level of slaughter. The wounded who were being hauled back from the front in wagons didn't have minor wounds. They had serious wounds like missing limbs, guts pouring out, and burns. Bodies were disfigured from shrapnel and bullets. Yet Joffre still had no clue to the extent of loss his first through fourth armies had suffered. The only hope of success for Plan 17 now lay in the hands of General Lenrezac's fifth army, who was on the left flank in an area of Belgium known as the Sambre. The right flank of the fifth would take the fortress city of Namur, while its left would secure Charleroi, and the approaching BEF would secure Mons and its canal, which they were being urged to do so with a sense of urgency. Or so, this is how Joffre planned for it to go down. The Sambre is actually a river that runs on its left in France all the way up to its right in Namur. In Belgium, the Sambre runs along Mons, Charleroi, and up to Namur. General von Kluck had determined his first army would arrive in Mons on August 23rd. Coincidentally, Sir Jean French had also calculated the BEF force would arrive on that same date, but the two had no idea of the other's plans. In theory, the success of the left flank depended on both Lindrizak's 5th Army and Sir Jean French's BEF force to coordinate and launch their attacks in sync. However, because Lindrizak was ordered by Joffre to cross the Sambre on the 21st, and the BEF was a full day behind the French, this was now going to be two separate battles starting at two different times, Charleroi and Mons. Most people think the Battle of Mons defines the whole area of the Sambre, which isn't really true. There are two separate battles. Lindrizak's 5th fought the Germans alone in Charleroi, and the British fought without the French at Mons. Lindrizak, at this point, wasn't feeling warm and fuzzy about all this. Meanwhile, as General von Bülow was moving his 2nd Army towards Charleroi, the 305 and 420mm siege mortars were being moved from Liège into position outside Namur, to pulverize those forts which were being held by a Belgian division. You gotta feel bad for the Belgians at this point, or chocolate soldiers is what they were dubbed. I mean, give it up for their courage alone. But in reality, they don't stand a fighting chance against the might of the German Imperial Army. Lindrizak was told by headquarters that the German right flank was only 17 to 18 divisions strong. With the 5th Army's 13 divisions plus two reserve divisions, the BEF's five divisions, and the one Belgian division, Lindrizak was told he had the upper hand in numbers. But this wasn't the case. This was false information, as was most of military intel. 
The Germans actually had 30 divisions coming right at them. Lindrizak knew from the start that the Germans had a much bigger force on his flank than headquarters had expected. And the more he expressed his concern to HQ, they just kept responding with, You're just exaggerating. On August 21st, a detachment from von Bülow's 2nd Army was already plunging into the Sambre, crossing between Charleroi and Amur. The 305s and the 420s had already been set up and began their bombardment on the fortress of Namur. Then Rizak, knowing his army was outnumbered, told the 5th Army, do not go on the offensive and attack. Stay in a defensive positions and don't let the Germans cross the river. But taking the defensive position in a fight wasn't the style the French were trained for. Again, before this, the style of fighting was to get online and when you see the enemy, you charge and attack. This was the old 19th century mentality of fighting and that is all they knew at this point. They ignored their commander's orders. They didn't lay any wire or dig any defensive positions. Instead, when the enemy was in sight, they charged and were quickly shut down and driven back. By nightfall, the Huns had crossed the Sombra in the town of Taminis. Namur would suffer the same fate as Liège. For two days, several hundred artillery pieces shelled the city which included the siege mortars. A liaison officer pleaded to Lenrizac that the town couldn't hold out another day. They needed to see French soldiers. 3,000 Pailus were immediately sent, bringing the defensive soldiers' numbers to 37,000. However, the Germans' assault force was estimated to have been around 110 to 150,000. I think just by hearing those numbers, we know the fate of Namur. On August 22nd, as British troops were moving up the road to Mons, a cavalry patrol reported seeing German corps moving down the Brussels-Mons road. It seems they both were headed for Saunier, a small town north of Mons. A British aviator reported seeing more German corps approaching from a road on the British left flank. Clearly, the Germans were moving to encircle the British and French left flank positions. But, even at this point, the Germans didn't know where the BEF were. They were just moving along with the Schlieffen plan, and according to Sir John French, no fighting would take place in this area until the 24th of August. Clearly his information was also wrong because the Huns would be in Saunier by nightfall. So with the reports from the cavalry patrols and aviation patrols, it was becoming clear to the British headquarters what was coming at them. Then Rizak had warned French headquarters about this, British Lord Kitchener had talked about this, but higher-ups like Joffre refused to listen. And now, all of a sudden now, eyes began to open up and they started to see what was coming down on them. The French put a little pep in the British step. As the men of the BEF approached Mons on the 22nd, a small cavalry reconnaissance squadron scouted a road north of the canal. They came to a halt when they spotted some horsemen coming at them on the opposite side of that road. Those men had also spotted the British riders, who also came to a halt. There was a short stare-off. At first, neither party recognized the other and didn't know who they were. Then, almost simultaneously, 
both German and British scouts knew exactly who they were looking at. The Germans fled back and the British gave chase. The Tommies caught up with them in the streets of Saunier. In the short fight, the Huns were restricted by their long cavalry lances and were struck down by the swords of the British. The scouts galloped back to the main fighting force in victory. Captain Hornby, leader of the squadron, was awarded the DSO, the Distinguished Service Order Medal, for being the first officer to kill a German with a new British cavalry sword. This was also a big confidence booster for the BEF infantry, as they watched their comrades ride back in victory. But General von Kluck was more surprised by the cavalry clash than anyone, because up to this point, he didn't know they were in front of him. He knew they had landed because it was published in a Belgian paper, but he didn't exactly know where they were. He actually thought the force landed in Dunkirk, so the British coming in from where they were was a bit of a shock. On this same day, von Bülow sent several of his corps to violently attack the lines of the Sambre. During that day, Bülow and Lindrizak's armies collided in the Battle of Charleroi. Later in the day, General von Hausen's third army had teamed up with von Bülow to continue the storm of attacks on the French. This was also the same day when the French third and fourth armies were being annihilated in the thick of the fog of the Ardennes. Reports were coming into Linrizac about his army already suffering heavy losses at Charleroi. The commander of the 10th Corps, General Boy, was brought by car to the town square where Linrizac and other staff officers had nervously been pacing back and forth. Boy was battered, his eyes told a story of defeat. He slowly whispered to Lenerzak, We held out as long as we could. The French, along with its two Algerian Turco divisions, who were equivalent to the Foreign Legion, fought with everything they had at Charleroi. A battalion of Turcos charged and took down a German gun battery. Several of the kills were by way of bayonet. Of the 1,030 members of that battalion, only two Turcos returned unwounded. The Algerian Turcos, or their real name, Tirawas were no pushovers. They were tough, proud fighters with strong roots in the French army. In the Napoleonic era, they were used to move ahead of the main force and start skirmishes with the enemy. The French 75 cannon teams are what really lacked in battle at Charleroi. The 75 cannons had the ability to fire 15 rounds a minute. They were only firing 2 to 3 rounds a minute. As the Germans attacked in dense formations, this would have been a great opportunity for the gunners to make use of the cannons. After all, that's why they were there. Another problem for the French was the German airplanes overhead, which acted as artillery spotters. The French reported as the planes flew over them, they would eventually have shells raining down on them. By evening, after suffering heavy losses, most of Linrizak's corps had started to fall back, creating a gap between the French 5th and the BEF about 10 miles long. Von Hausen also brought up four fresh corps and 340 guns to Linrizak's battered force along the Meuse. The only corps to put up a fight during this night was the 5th Army's 1st Corps, who actually listened to Linrizak and dug entrenched defensive positions. They were able to hold the right flank on the Meuse for a short period of time. On the morning of August 23rd, the sky over Charleroi was filled with black puffy clouds of smoke from shells exploding. The Pailus had dubbed them Marmites after the cast iron soup pots on every French stove. The shells rained on the soldiers all day. The roads surrounding the Sombra were filled with Belgium refugees who decided to get the hell out of Dodge. 
The terrified faces pushing wheelbarrows, carrying babies, tired, probably had no idea where they were going. They just knew by instinct to get as far away as possible. You have to remember, these are ordinary citizens. Their world just got turned upside down literally overnight. They didn't ask for this. And as they're fleeing, the burst from the artillery and the continued hiss of the bullets overhead, they're also getting a direct view of the dead. The carnage of what this war is producing from not only men, but also from horses. They're not exactly taking a walk in the park. They're moving down roads littered with blood, guts, body parts, and dead horses and humans just thrown about like garbage. And many of these bodies in the hot sun are starting to bloat and smell like rotting sewer of meat. This was also the day Japan declared war on Germany. Japan, being an ally to the United Kingdom since 1902, told the British they would help take out raiders along the waters of China, and in return, they would get German territories from the Pacific. That morning, Len Rizak's staff officers were urging him to counterattack, but he refused. If he pushed for another offensive, the chances of the whole 5th Army being wiped out was too great of a risk. That will be a total defeat and give way for the German 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Armies to continue on to Paris. However, if he pulled back now, the 5th wouldn't be totally defeated. They still could regroup, put up a defensive position, and still put up some fight. At this time, he knew the rest of the French army was also in retreat. Len Rizak finally gave the order of general retreat. He knew that by refusing to counterattack and giving this new order, his days were done. And they were. Joffre and the French headquarters, instead of recognizing that Plan 17 was a complete failure, they blamed it on Len Rizak and used him as a scapegoat. In my opinion, Len Rizak seemed to be the only French officer with a head on his shoulder before the battle kicked off. He warned, they ignored, he really got the shaft in all of this. Meanwhile, back at Mons, the BEF and von Kluck's first army had been having themselves a bit of a standoff. But instead of it being outside the OK Corral, this was a standoff at the Mons Canal. The canal was 60 feet in width, bordered by railroad sidings, factories, which reeked of fumes from furnaces. It was an industrial working city. The BEF now took up positions running west to east on the southern part of the canal. Sir Jean French's headquarters were 30 miles south of Mons in a city called Le Cateau. Thinking the French 5th Army was already in retreat, which they actually weren't up to this exact point, Sir John ordered his men not to go on the offensive but to hold the line at the canal. General Smith Dorian, commander of the 2nd Corps, held a 50-mile stretch of the canal that ran between Mons and Condé. On the right of the 2nd Corps was General Haig's 1st Corps, whose line ran from Mons to Linrizac's left wing. General Allenby's cavalry was put in the rear as reserves, which was good because using cavalry in a fight like this was like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Something to note, Von Kluck was forcing his men as far left as possible to try and outflank the British at this point. The more he pushed west, the more gap he created between the German and 1st and 2nd armies. Technically, Haig's 1st Corps was the dividing line between Kluck and Bulow. Just keep that in the back of your mind as this battle kicks off. Smith Dorian issued the bridges in his sector to be rigged up for demolition, for upon retreat they were to be blown up. And what were the compared numbers going into this Battle of Mons? Well, the British had about 70,000 men with 300 guns, and von Kluck had about 170,000 men with 600 guns. 
the Germans clearly had the upper hand on paper alone. The fighting finally broke out that morning with the Germans opening fire on the BEF. Their main concentration point was the bridge at Nimi. The Germans sent wave after wave in dense formations, and unlike the French, the British listened to the orders. They were well dug in and returned fire at a rapid pace. Remember the mad minute training? This is where it comes into play. The British soldiers were expert riflemen with the bolt-action Lee Einfeld. They returned fire at such a rapid, accurate pace, the Huns actually thought they were facing machine guns. Wave after wave of Germans were struck down. With two sharp movements of the hand working the bolt of the rifle, the Tommies at a rapid pace locked a round in with the bolt, fired, then smoothly discharged the expanded casing of the round and replaced it with a fresh one. Back and forth went the bolts in action, the pop of the rifles, shot after shot, fast as smooth, smooth as fast. A German captain describes the beginning of the fight, saying, quote, We had no sooner left the edge of the wood than a volley of bullets whistled past our noses and cracked into the trees behind. Five or six cries near me. Five or six of my gray lads collapsed on the grass. Damn it, this was serious. Here we were, advancing as if on a parade ground. Hew, hew, sir, 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 went about our ears, away in front a sharp, rapid hammering sound, then a pause, then more rapid hammering machine guns. Over to our left, the rifle and machine gun fire was even more intense. The roar of the guns and bursting shells increased. A real battle this time. Captain Walter Blom, 2nd Battalion, 12th Infantry Regiment, end quote. A private from the BEF describes his account of the opening battle, saying, quote, They went down like nine pins until all we could see in front of us was a regular wall of dead and wounded. Above the noise of the rifle fire, you could hear a strange wailing sound, and they turned and ran for the cover of the fir trees. Private Tom Bradley, 4th Middlesex Regiment, end quote. But the Germans changed up their formations after a few hours. Instead of having everyone bunched up and rushing, they now started to spread out. Now the Tommies had to slow their rate of fire down with a more accurate aim shot. This is also when the German artillery started raining down hell on the British, which never makes for a good time. Now the BEF casualties started to pile up. By late afternoon, the casualties for the BEF's 2nd Corps had become too much. Their numbers were starting to thin out. They blew the bridge at Nimi and retreated to the 2nd defensive position about 3 miles to the rear. A captain describes the confusion as this was taking place, saying, quote, We held the Germans all day, killing hundreds when about 5 p.m. the order to retire eventually given. It never reached us and we were left alone. The Germans got right up to the canal on our right, hidden by the railway embankment and crossed the railway. Our people had blown up the bridge before their departure. We found ourselves alone and I realized we had about 2,000 Germans in a canal between myself and friends. We decided to sell our lives dearly. I ordered my men to fix bayonets and charge, which the gallant fellows did splendidly, but we got shot down like ninepins. As I reloaded my revolver, I was hit in the right wrist. 
I dropped my revolver. My hand was too weak to draw my sword. This afterwards saved my life. I had not gone far when a bullet went through the calf of my right leg, which brought me down. Those who could walk, the Germans took away as prisoners. As regards myself, when I lay upon the ground, I found my coat sleeve full of blood, so I knew an artery or some sort had been cut. The Germans had a shot at me when I was on the ground to finish me off. That shot hit my sword, which I wore on my side, and broke it in half, just below the hilt. This turned the bullet off and saved my life. We lay out there a night, for twenty-four hours. I had fainted from the loss of blood when I lost my senses. I thought I should never see anything again. Captain William Morritt, 1st East Surrey Regiment, end quote. Mort was picked up the next day, along with eight other wounded men by local Belgian civilians, and were sheltered in a convent before eventually being captured and imprisoned by the German army. The Germans, who also suffered some heavy losses the first couple hours, weren't exactly rushed in a chase after the British. The Tommies were a much more well-trained fighting force than the French army, whose majorities were volunteers. A German captain from the Third Corps found himself the only surviving officer of his company and the only surviving commander of his battalion. He said, quote, If the English have the slightest suspicion of our condition and counterattack, they will simply overrun us. End quote. Part of the problem for the Germans was their flanking positions. These corps divisions were supposed to be in place the time the main fighting force opened fire. Well, they weren't. They were still several miles behind. If all would have attacked at once, they might have rolled right over the BEF. And by nightfall, the flanking divisions finally came online, and the attacks were renewed, driving the BEF back even further. Also note, Haig's line that separated von Kluck and von Bülow, well, Bülow never attacked on the 23rd, saying his army wasn't able to locate the line. Haig's force never engaged the enemy. So by the next day, the Battle of Mons was over. The BEF's 1st Corps didn't even fire a shot and was now in retreat. The men of the BEF's 2nd Corps, having no idea of the fighting numbers the Huns had, had no idea the French 5th was in retreat, couldn't understand why they were in retreat. This was the first time the British had engaged an enemy on European soil since the Battle of Waterloo. The courage the outnumbered men displayed towards the enemy, superior in number, had gone down among the greatest of the British army. It created fictitious stories like the Angel of Mons. In G.J. Meyer's book titled A World Undone, he describes the Angel of Mons, saying, quote, There arose in the aftermath of this battle the strangest and most beautiful legend of the war. It was said that, when the British peril was at its highest, a majestic figure had appeared high in the sky with arms upraised. Some said it had been pointing to victory, others that it held back the Germans as the Tommies got away. It came to be known as the Angel of Mons, end quote. And what about the towns of Charleroi and Mons? Three great powers just stepped into Belgium to duke it out. What about the citizens in their homes? Barbara Tuckman, in her book, The Guns of August, describes it best what the people had to look forward to in the wake of these two battles, saying, quote, Belgium lay coated with white dust from the shattered walls of its houses and pockmarked with the debris of battles. Muddied hay used by the soldiers as beds trailed in the streets along with the abandoned packs and blood-stained bandages. And as Will Irwin wrote, subquote, Overall lay a smell, which I have never heard mentioned in any book on war. The smell of half a million unbathed men, 
It lay for days over every town through which a German passed, end subquote. Mingled with it was the smell of blood and medicine and horse manure and dead bodies. The human dead were supposed to be buried by their own troops before midnight, but often there were too many and there was too little time, and even less for the dead horses whose bodies lying unburied for a longer time became bloated and putrid. Belgian peasants trying to clear their fields of the dead after the armies passed by could be seen bending on their spades like pictures by Millet. End quote. Smith Dorian took the Second Corps and established a defensive position at Le Cateau. He did this to dissuade the Germans' chase. And on August 26, the Germans caught up to them. The Battle of Le Cateau was on. Problem was, there was no time to dig proper defensive positions like trenches. Le Cateau turned out to be bloodier than Mons. Around 55,000 BEF soldiers tried to hold off an estimated 140,000 Germans. Eventually, the Germans pulled back to regroup and the BEF went into full retreat, but not without taking an estimated 80,000 casualties. On the other side of the Western Front, the Germans kept scoring victory after victory with continued French assaults. The French no doubt had courage, but their casualty rate being so high, they had zero victory to show for it. At least the BEF gained some moral victory at the start of Mons. The French had nothing to show for the amount of loss they were taking. And now, the Great Retreat begins. Both the French and BEF in full were moving back, with the Germans relentlessly pursuing them. Marching side by side, they covered more than 190 miles in 13 days. One battalion from the BEF moved 55 miles in 36 hours. That's a brutal march for men who've just been ran through the shit of war. And during the retreat, it was hard to miss the refugees also fleeing for their lives. One BEF captain wrote the following, saying, quote, One of the saddest sights of that day was the huge columns of refugees on the main road to Geese. Carts heaped with household treasures led by crying women and frightened children. These carts were ruthlessly swept off the road to make passage for the troops. This was absolutely necessary, of course, in spite of its cruelty. None of these poor people could have crossed the river at Geese, as we had to blow up the bridge after crossing and held back the fugitives to do it. Captain Hubert Reese, 2nd Welsh Regiment, end quote. Another British officer describes the situation of the retreat, saying, quote, I had already several times gone to sleep while marching and found myself in the ditch. I gave up trying to drive men back to the ranks. When they fell, they knew what was in store for them by now, as well as I did and I knew the agony they must be suffering from their feet, many having raw heels and toes from the hard marching we had done. Some would fall out, but at the next halt they would limper in again. The pace to begin with had been killing. I myself was suffering from an abscess on my toe, which felt like hot knives at every step. Captain Beauchamp Tudor St. John, 1st Northumberland Fusiliers, end quote. The BEF fell back to the River Marne, beaten physically and mentally, they were in bad shape. Overall, I believe what determined the success of the Germans at Mons and Charleroi was the superiority in numbers of infantry and the bigger artillery guns alone. I don't believe they were harder fighting soldiers. The Tommies proved to be crack shots and could work a bolt-action rifle like no other. The Tuchos at Charleroi were also hard as nails. They were just outnumbered. 
the numbers really had the upper hand in this chess game. This would be the last of the August fighting for the French and the British. The Great Retreat would spare the fighting until September. But the fighting in August isn't done for the Germans. On the next episode, I'll talk about what's in store for the German army. And I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. A few episodes ago, I mentioned that I would start recommending World War I books or movies at the end of some episodes. Well, this episode, I'm going to recommend a French movie that released in 2017 called See You Up There. Obviously, that's the English title. I rented it on Amazon Prime, so it's easily accessible. The premise of the movie is about a man who becomes disfigured at the end of the Great War, then turned his misfortune into a profitable crime. I enjoyed it, and I think you'll enjoy it too. And that's going to be it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please follow me on Instagram at OTTGWpodcast and on Facebook. And you can email the show at OTTGWpodcast.com. Please leave me a review on whichever podcast platform you listen to the show on. Thank you, everyone.